0: to whoever's mic I'm grabbing right now. Does it work? All right. Yeah, so uh, it's good to have uh, some friends here. Some have known me longer than others. It's good to have my mentor, teacher, good longtime family friend, Charles and Paula Luff here in the back. Um, He's one of the reasons why I'm in ministry today. And what a cool surprise to have them here. It's cool to have Sean Franklin here. Sean, Sean was here like from the beginning and then moved, and uh, I just had to point him out because we love you, dude. Um, yeah, and Some of you haven't known me as long, so uh, I'm Vince. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain. And uh, if you're into the whole Enneagram thing, I'm a seven. I don't know if that helps you get to know me a little better. <laughs> have, you <laughs> have you guys gotten into the whole Enneagram? Thing? Like, you meet somebody and immediately you know, you're you're like, "What's your number? What number are you? Oh, you're a s- oh, you're a seven. Oh, you know, you, you have that whole like, I know you now completely, because I read a page on the internet that described you before I met you. Have you noticed that the Enneagram thing conversationally has kind of replaced the Zodiac? It used to be like, I'm a Scorpio, I'm a Libra, now it's like, well, I'm a three, and uh, anybody." Yeah, some of you are like, what's the Enneagram? What's he talking about? I, I don't know how you feel about that whole thing. It's a, it's a personality test, but one of the things I appreciate about it is um, I was reading a few, a few weeks ago now, and there's a root motivation behind all the different personality types in the Enneagram. All of them have a root negative motivation where their entire personality is a response to three things, either guilt or shame or fear. And I thought, that's pretty insightful. Because that's a a place where scripture and personality tests and modern-day psychology all seem to converge and agree and say there are these negative motivations that can completely fuel and drive our life. Like guilt and shame and fear. And uh, for instance, some of you are motivated to make money, right? But why? Why are you motivated to make money? For some of you, it might be, because you, you want more significance, right? If I could just have some more significance, if I could have people look at me and think I've arrived because I'm wearing a blue linen sport coat on a Sunday. Which, by the way, I got at a thrift store, basically, so <laughs> it's not significance, okay? For some of you, it might be more like satisfaction. If I had more money, I could experience more things. I could buy more things. I could enjoy life more. For others of us, it's a sense of security, right? Oh, man, if I had more money, I could control my, be the master of my fate. That is what I want in this life. But then what's behind those things? If you keep tracking backward, you know, or or maybe, maybe it's relationship. You want a relationship, you know? And maybe it's because you want somebody to want you. I want you to want me. <laughs> <laughs> I need you to need me, right? May- maybe that's what it is. Or maybe it's, maybe it's because you want to send out those, you know, quirky Christmas pictures and show everybody what an awesome family you have, Or which, by the way, are beautiful, and we love those. They're on our fridge <laughs> if you sent them to us. <laughs> or maybe it's fear that you'll end up alone, fear of missing out. But what's the thing behind the thing? question I have for you today is, what, what's the why? What are the whys behind all your what's? What's really driving your life? What are the deepest whys of your heart? I met with a pastor friend a few months ago who was burnt out. He had taken an extended emergency sabbatical, and we were, we were hanging out and talking, and, and I said, dude, what, we missed you. Where'd you go? What happened? H- how are you? And he said, I, I just came to an end of myself. I felt like I was driving toward a cliff. Because I was looking at my past, and I realized that on this sabbatical, I was feeling so burnt out, I didn't know why, but on this sabbatical, I realized my entire past was driving my life. Because all of the things I'd ever done wrong were like mounding up and building up and and crushing me, and I felt like I had to make up for them somehow. That's why I got into ministry. And then I I look forward, and I'm like, oh, man, I just want to be successful. I see these guys with the big churches. I see all this, and I feel this pressure, this fear of missing out, this if I don't get there, if I don't arrive, I will have amounted to nothing. And I, I, I realized I was trying to make up for all this stuff with all that future stuff I was aiming for, and I was crushing myself under the guilt and under the fear. And in the middle of it all, I'm missing moments with my family. I can't be fully present. I don't even feel comfortable in my own skin. Guilt and shame and fear compiling and just crushing an entire life. What's driving your life? Everything we say and everything we do is motivated by something. What is it? What's motivating you? The right motivation will save your life, but the wrong motivation will lead you down a path of destruction and brokenness. And Holy Scripture says that the good news... Of what God has done for us in Christ is the only thing that has the power to to motivate and empower and save your life without derailing it. So let's take a look at how the gospel can save your past, your present, and your future. You guys ready? All right. The past saved from sin's penalty. Let's look at Romans chapter 1. We're going to hop around scripture quite a bit today, so your Bibles or or, uh, Bible apps ready. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, many of us are familiar. Paul's talking, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Do you see those tenses? From faith, that's the past, future, for faith, and right now I'm living by faith. Yeah, you're with me. The past, the present, the future action of salvation at work in your life by faith. God is at work saving you right now if you're in Christ. And Paul's saying that it's a work of faith. It started with faith, and it doesn't move from faith onto some works or some thing you do, but it actually is motivated and fueled by ongoing, increasing faith in your life. The gospel is not good news about what you have to do for God. The gospel is good news about what God has done for you. And Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and we receive it through faith. And when we talk about salvation, what's, that's an interesting word. You know, I talk to people, and they'll say, yeah, I'm saved. I've been saved since I was five years old. You heard that? It's cool. And it's, I always want to ask, like, saved from what, you know? At five, what were you saved from? And oftentimes, I think, We can use Christianese quite a bit and just use language that we're all familiar with but not really think about what it means. Where are we saved from? Because scripture says we've been saved from something, we're being saved from something, and one day we will be saved from something. So what is it? Paul goes on, the righteous shall live by faith, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So God is a little sad, teeny tiny bit upset. No, no, what word does it use here? Wrath. God? I thought he was loving. I thought God was, like, benevolent and kind. What's up with the wrath thing here? But any loving person, if you really love somebody, can be filled with wrath. In the book, Hope Has Its Reasons, which is, A great book by one of my favorite authors, uh, Becky Pippard. It says this. I've got the quote up here. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond to them with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Because why? Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. Human love offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him, the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. If I, this is her speaking, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more? A morally perfect God who made them. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion. But his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. God has wrath. And why does God say, or why does Paul say that God has wrath? It says, because there was a truth. People knew the truth, and they did what with it? Suppressed it. Suppressed the truth. Imagine a crime scene where that happened. How would you feel if a loved one of yours passed away in a crime scene? And the truth was suppressed where it would never came out. I mean, at the very least, it was due to somebody's in, indifference. But at the worst, it was just outright obstruction of justice. How would you feel? You'd be ticked, right? And what is this truth that, that is not coming out because people are suppressing it? It's the truth that our heart needs. More than any other truth, it's, it's the truth about God's nature, the, the loving God, the gracious heart of our father who sent his son to invite us back into family and sent his spirit to empower our lives. That gracious, loving, caring God is being lied about. His glory and his character is being brought into question. And that lie, as we believe it, keeps us from walking in a relationship with the living God of the universe. And Paul goes on to explain it. How all humanity's done this. He, he says that we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That we've begun worshiping the, the creature, the created things, in place of the creator. And it's 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 all due to this lie. It's it's like the, the snake like slithered into the garden, right? And he got in there and he whispered, Has God really said? And that lie was like a snowball at the top of a mountain that began to roll down and careen out of control and pick up steam and became a mighty avalanche of death and destruction to where at the bottom of the mountain, it's just death and decay and body parts and brokenness and basically what we see every day when we read the news. Look at, look at how Paul says it at the end of this chapter. Evil, covetous, envious, murderous, proud. Deceitful, perverted, faithless, heartless, ruthless, inventors of new ways of doing evil who celebrate one another's sin. It's that that avalanche and destruction, right? And as we look at it, if we're honest with ourselves, we see pieces of our own lives in there. Because we've all been caught in the avalanche, every one of us. We've all fallen prey to lies about God that we've believed and the brokenness that those lies produce in our life and the, the injustices in our world that are a reflection of the injustices in our own heart and the self-centered brokenness and sin that's all around us. We've, we've earned this wrath that he's talking about. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. In which, you watch, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, following who? The prince and power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So you've been lied to, you've believed it, and now who are you following? The father of lies, instead of your father God, the God of truth. That's a story of us apart from God, and he keeps going. The spirit that's now at work of the sons of disobedience, verse 3, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of, here's that word again, wrath, like the rest of mankind. What a dark picture. I know some of you are like, dang, Vince, (laughs) I need another cup of coffee if we're going to go there this morning. You should have warned me. But here's the deal. If we don't go there, we can never fully appreciate the hope that we have. If we don't understand how dark the bad news is, we can never fully appreciate how bright and glorious the good news is. And thank God Paul doesn't stop there. Verse verse 4. But God. It's my favorite but in the Bible. But God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us, what? Alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved. Through what? Faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God not the result of works, so that no one may boast. You've been made alive together with Christ. So Jesus shows up on the scene, lives 33 and a half years, always does what's right, never does what's wrong, trusts God perfectly, obeys God perfectly, and ends up in a garden. And he cries out and trembles and sweats as it were great drops of blood, it says, and he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will be yours. What's he talking about? What cup? Well, the pages of the Old Testament are rustling with this rumor. If you read Psalm 60, Psalm 75, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, over and over, it's in Obadiah, there's all these allusions to the cup of wrath. The cup of God's wrath against sin. All the sin of all the people of all time. And Jesus stood there looking that cup in the face and said, I don't want to drink that. That's a lot of judgment. Nevertheless, not my will be yours be done. And he went to that judgment and hell was poured out on him for you and I and he didn't leave a drop for you and I he drank all of it if you're in Christ today there's no more judgment for you there's no more guilt you are not your sin you're not the result of your sin you've been freed And the word that we use for that in Christianese is justification. As the old country preacher said, just as if I never sinned. You've been justified. Jesus took all your guilt and your sin and nailed it to the cross with him. Look at 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, everybody say that's me. Let's try again. Everybody say that's me. that's me. For our sake. For that for me, he made him to be sin. Who knew no sin? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you're in Christ, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, he doesn't see your guilt. He he sees Jesus perfect spotless righteousness. He sees you alive together with Christ. The gospel frees you from the guilt of your past. And when we don't believe that, you know what we do? We live in such a way that we try to justify our own existence. We work really hard to try to prove ourselves to ourselves and God and others. Like my pastor friend was talking about his entire ministry, his entire work for God was being fueled by trying to prove himself to God. It's as if we walk up to the cross and Jesus is there and he says, it is finished. And you say, whoa, 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 hold on. It's not finished yet. I got to add some of my goodness to it too. Your life has all the justification it needs. You don't need anything else to prove yourself to anyone. You have Christ. How much significance does Jesus have? Pretty significant. That's yours now. How much security does Jesus have? That's yours now. Why why are you living a life chasing after some version of security you can grip with your own hands? How How much satisfaction does the God of the universe have? That's yours now. He's satisfied in you. You can be satisfied in him. And one day, you will be for all eternity. But right now, you can taste and see that the Lord is good. Because of the gospel, everything that's his is yours. And that's what it means to be alive together with Christ. Justification. You've been saved from sin's penalty. There's no more room for guilt in your life. Let's keep going. Present. Being saved from sin's power. Sanctification. Anybody want to take a stab at what that means? It's a big word. It's from the Latin word sanctus, which means to clean, to purify, to purge, to make sacred. If you're in Christ, you're being made sacred. Think about that. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I would remind you of the gospel. Pause there. I know some of you are like, yeah, I've heard this a thousand times at this church. We need it again and again. You need, I need to be reminded of the good news of the gospel every day of our lives. Amen. So Paul's going for it. I would remind you of the gospel, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. I preach to you. And notice the tenses here. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you. That's the gospel. Unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, it's not on low on the priority list, Is the top priority of the kingdom and the church. First importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according with the scriptures. That's what we were just talking about. He took your guilt away. And he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That word being saved there is, is an interesting tense. It's a present perfect tense. It's actively, you're actively being saved. So you have been saved from sin's penalty, you've been justified. But every day of your life, you're being saved from sin's power at work in your life. And that's called sanctification. God's at work doing that. And how are we being saved? It's by faith in what? The gospel. He says, holding fast to the word I preach to you. So God is freeing you from slavery to sin. God is making you holy but often we think that this starts with behavior modification. There's this uh, story I love um, where Peter, early church father, uh, did we get ahead on the slide? Okay, don't go there yet because I found a picture, it's awesome, um, <laughs> early, early church father Peter who is asleep one day on his roof, and God sends him a vision, and it's this blanket filled with unclean animals that the Jewish people don't eat. And God says, kill and eat. And he goes, what? <laughs> That's not going to happen. And he keeps getting this vision. And all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door downstairs, and he comes running down. And there's a servant there from Cornelius' house. Cornelius is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. And they asked Peter to come there. And so Peter goes and he preaches the gospel, and to his amazement, Cornelius receives the gospel. The entire family is baptized, right, and they're saved. And all of a sudden, Peter, we find Peter hanging out and eating with the Gentiles. Well, God said to, so here I am, bacon. you know. <laughs> Talk about a worship-filled experience. And now Paul is writing to the church of Galatia about not being bewitched by the law again, about the freedom we have in Christ. And he starts telling a story about the time he has a UFC fight throwdown with Peter, two early church fathers. And I think we found a picture of it. (laughs) Let's read this Galatians 2. But when this is Paul talking to the church of Galatia, but when Cephas, that's that's uh, Peter's Jewish name. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Dang, Paul. chill. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. I love verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with what? The truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because the works of the law, no one will be justified. So what does Paul challenge Peter with? Does he go to him and say, dude, you're breaking the no racist rule. You're being kind of racist right now. Or does he like slap up the no hypocrisy rule? He doesn't bring a new law to him. He says, dude, there's this thing called the gospel, and your life is like way out of line with it. Why aren't you living a life with the truth that's yours in the gospel? And if you read all of the epistles, all the epistles, the early letters written to the church about how to live this life out, most of them have what you call imperatives, commands, Do this, don't do this. It's always at the very end. The first several chapters, they spend talking about who God is. And what he's done for us in Christ and the gospel over and over. they start talking about, this is who you are now. Because this is who God is. This is what he's done for you. He's given you a new identity in Christ. This is who you are. And, man, when you live like this, it's it's not really lining up with the truth of the gospel. Live live like this because it lines up with who you are now. Are we tracking? Here's here's some quick examples. If you want to talk about marriage, Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. When they talk about generosity, look at 2 Corinthians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. He's going to the gospel. He's saying, don't be motivated by new laws and new behaviors and trying to get yourself good enough for God. Be motivated by what God did for you. Be motivated by the gospel, not guilt and shame anymore, the gospel. Look at service, Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Every time the New Testament writers try to challenge us, they start with our belief in the gospel. God doesn't sanctify you by behavior modification. God sanctifies you by belief modification because 100% of the time, Modified beliefs eventually lead to modified behaviors. The behavior will follow. So, yes, it matters what you say. It matters what you do. It matters how you live. But that's the fruit of your life. That's the fruit of your beliefs. If you don't like the way you're living, pause and look at what you're believing. About who God is, about what he's done, about what he says of you. Who who are you? And in our world, we don't do that. We tend to use guilt and shame to motivate behavior, right? Guilt is about what you did, shame is about who you are. Right? So guilt's about what you did in your past, shame's about who that makes you now. And your present. (laughs) And we got a glimpse of this last night. Um, we were preparing for this and Gavin comes in or Ivan comes in the kitchen and goes, Dad, did you walk the dog? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I don't know. That's not what he sounds like. <laughs> Dad, did you walk the dog? And I said, yeah. It was a little late. I got wrapped up in studying. Why? He goes, he peed all over the bathroom. So we go, and, and there's Levi has peed the ginormous puddle all over the bathroom and the shower rug. And here comes the work. So what do you do? You get Levi. You bring him over to the pee. You put his nose by it, and what do you say? Bad dog. (laughs) Bad. You are a vile creature. (laughs) That's not what you say, but (laughs) that reminds me of the "Dissing Your Dog" (laughs) by Will Ferrell. Um, Sorry. (laughs) Google that if you haven't seen it. Google "Dissing Your Dog." Um, It's a yeah. But why did I do that? Yeah, don't Google it yet. Wait till lunch. Why did I do? It? I can't sit down with Levi and have a conversation about his lack of gospel motivation. <laughs> Levi, you're a dog of God. Why aren't you living in light with the gospel? You know. And, and the truth is, like most of us, grew up with a little bit of that in our life. There's a time when kids are super young. You can't sit down and have a gospel conversation with them. Just got to say no. You know. Pull them back from the street. There's a time when you introduce the law to them, and when they break that law, they feel guilt and they start to feel shame. And sometimes we even utilize that. And some of us have grown up with that. Some of us have grown up. Some of us have gone to school where we were taught like that. Some of us. <laughs> I did not know you were going to be here, but I'm not talking about Charles Love here. But some of us, you know, when we get coached, we've been coached with guilt or shame. Some of us, when you got that first job or, or in your college classes, your teachers use guilt and shame to motivate you. Why? Because it gets compliance. It's a cheap, easy way of getting compliance It's behavior modification. And what we end up doing, right, is, is, is we end up doing that to ourselves. We end up developing that internal dialogue going on <laughs> all the time. Guilting ourselves, shaming ourselves. Why? Often because we're afraid that if we don't change, it's going to lead somewhere we don't like. Right? If I keep doing this behavior, it's going to screw up my job. It's going to ruin my marriage. I want a good marriage. I want a good job. I want this. Therefore, I'm going to guilt and shame myself. And we don't have that conversation, but it's playing. It's playing down beneath in the, in the deep whys behind our what's. Behavior modification rooted in guilt, shame, and fear. Guilt, shame, and fear conspire so often within our hearts to change our behavior in order to get the things we want. And then on the flip side, oftentimes we just get tired of it. You guys ever been there? And we go from like a religious, moralistic kind of type of thing to r- pure relativism. We get sick of it, and we just start believing lies that stir our consciences. The thing I did wasn't really that bad. Because, right, I, I mean, if I'd known better, you know, people should have told me. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm the victim here, right? I'm basically a good person. Uh, oh, yeah, go ahead and read the Bible. But, dude, it was written like 2,000 years ago. Isn't it out of touch a bit, don't you? I mean, is that what it really means anyway? And that's where we go. Why do we go there? Why do we question God? To get rid of the guilt, shame, and fear. So, we either throw out truth and we throw out definitions of sin and we self justify and we try to change the rules or we allow ourselves to be rolled over and crushed under the guilt and the shame and the fear. But the gospel says those extremes don't have to define your life. Your best and your worst days don't have to define you. What others have said about you don't have to define you. Why? Because I'm the one that made you, I'm your creator. I spoke you into existence. I, I thought you were worth saving. So I took on flesh and I took your place and I lived a perfect life in your place. And I died a death on the cross for you. And I overcame death, hell, and the grave for you. Now your present is free from your past. You got to watch what's behind you. Now your guilt can't reach back from your past and define your present with shame. Why? Because you're in Christ. God says, I define you. Here's here's some words from Ephesians. I call you my sons and daughters. I call you beloved. I call you chosen. I call you adopted. You are predestined to be holy. You are seated right now in heavenly places in Christ. You are sealed with the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. You are Guaranteed an inheritance. You are mine. You're precious to me. You're worth the price I paid. The gospel frees us from the shame of our present. And I, I have to go into this point really briefly because it's still a struggle for many of us because not all of us have been to heaven yet. Some of us still sin. How do we deal with the fact that we still struggle with sin? Cuz as we we're like yes, I'm free. It's the breath of fresh air. God loves me. And then like Britney Spears. Oops. I did it again. <laughs> How do we deal with the ongoing guilt and shame that keeps cropping up in our life? Martin Luther had this great saying I won't bore you with too long, but it's a simul justice et peccator. it's Latin. It means at the same time, a saint and a sinner. At the same time, yeah, right now you're seated in heavenly places in Christ. Beloved, we are now children of God. Right. That's 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 true of you because God said it. And God spoke all this into being. And yet tomorrow, I'm going to have a bad attitude. I'm going to lose my cool. I'm going to start using my horn in an unsanctified way on the way to work, right? Tim Keller says it this way. In Christ, you are at the same time more sinful than you dare believe and more loved and accepted than you could ever hope for. The gospel doesn't act like you never sinned. It accounts for your sin. It says your sin was so bad that God had to die for it, but it says that you are so loved he was willing to. Rebecca Pippert in that same book says this, if the cross shows me that I'm far worse than I had ever imagined, it also shows me that my evil has been absorbed and forgiven. If the worst thing any human can do is kill God's son, and that can be forgiven, then how can anything else not be forgiven? The gospel frees you from your guilt because you've been justified. And the gospel frees you from your shame because you've been, you're, you're being sanctified every day. Hey, actually, before we go on, close your eyes for a second. I just want you to think about your life for a second. Take some inventory. Like, you're free from shame, but a lot of us have old identities and old lenses through which we view ourselves in our lives. Some of us have old words spoken over to, spoken over our lives, like like broken records playing in our heart. Or maybe you have old sins that you've somehow believed you've been forgiven for, but you still carry them around because you feel like you're defined by them. The gospel says that those old identities cannot lay claim on your life. Those old words spoken over you aren't true of you anymore. You're a new creation in Christ. Those old sins have been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. They've been tossed into the sea of forgetfulness. He became those sins. You became his righteousness. Can you dare to believe that? Maybe for the first time. Or maybe just believing it again because you've lost sight of it. Hmm. That's, you can open your eyes. That's, That's what sanctification is. It's not behavior modification because of guilt, shame, and fear. Sanctification is belief modification that leads to a redeemed and increasingly holy life. And as you believe the gospel more and more, the tractor beam of sin will lose its powerful pull on your heart. So that's justification. You've been saved from sin's penalty. You're free from guilt. Sanctification, you're being saved from sin's power. You're shame free. Last one, the shortest one, future. How is God? How is the gospel at work saving your future? One day you will be saved from the presence of sin. Do you believe that? How often do you actually spend time thinking about heaven? Thinking about the life after this one? I'll tell you what, man. The more you think about it, the more free it will make you now. And here's why. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. That's the past. To a living hope right now in the present through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, future, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded. Right? And that's you. By God's power, you're being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. I just want to talk about two phrases from there. Living hope. That living hope that Peter's talking about there. Do you have a clear picture of the hope that's yours? Or are your hope glasses foggy from working your butt off and running around in circles trying to prove yourself? Are your hope glasses scratched up by life from getting beat up by your sin and brokenness? How clearly can you see the hope that's yours in Christ? One day, if you're in Christ, you will be totally free from sin's presence. Heaven will come down to earth. I love, I love the way that 1 John says it. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. As certain as, as the ground beneath your feet is, that is your future. It's a living hope. How much of your life are you allowing to live in that hope? Two, he says, guarded by God's power. How powerful is God? Pretty powerful, yeah? Pretty powerful. Do you think God's able to guard you? Is he able to keep you from falling? Is he able to not lose any that the Father's put in his hands, like Jesus said? He that began a good work in you, Philippians says, what? Will we'll see it through to completion. He that began the work, will see it through. He's the author and perfecter of your faith. I mean, Just imagine if you really believe that. And, and by believe that, I mean, imagine if you really live like w- it was true. Here, here's another way to say it. Imagine living completely free from fear. Henry Nouwen says this in one of my favorite books, Life Signs. If you're looking for a good read, buy it. This is a good one. We are fearful people. The more people I come to know and the more I come to know people, the more I am overwhelmed by the negative power of fear. It often seems that fear has invaded every part of our being to such a degree that we no longer know what a life without fear would look like. Listen to this statistic anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S., affecting 40 million adults in the U.S., age 18 and older, over 18% of our population. We're not just talking about dealing with a, a daily sense of, of dread or fear. We're talking about debilitating anxiety. Or, or think about this. We spend more annually on our national defense than the next 10 countries combined, $686 billion. Right, and And people who want to control us and who want to get us to vote a certain way or do a certain thing, they often use fear to control us. I wish there was a way we could get free from that fear. I wish there was like a scripture that said something about there was a way to cast out fear. <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder what would cast out fear. Uh, we'll go there. There's no fear in love, 1 John 4.18. But perfect love, the perfect love of God that we see in the gospel, Casts out fear. Where can we see God's perfect love on display for us? It's in the gospel. The, the good news of the life, death, and resurrection, the, the resurrection frees us from fear and fills us with this living hope that Peter's talking about. The resurrection says that in the end, no matter how this life goes, we win. Now, I've used this example before, but it bears repeating. Like, the football's going on. Some of you guys are, are probably like, when's he gonna finish? Because I gotta get some chicken wings and get in front of that screen see my team. But the cool thing is, nowadays... We have this thing, you know, whatever you call it now, DVR, TiVo, I I don't know, we're unplugged, we're super hipster, we just use Netflix and Hulu, so I don't know how to record TV, but whatever you use, your chosen device, if you recorded the game today and you knew, your team wins, no matter what, your team wins, you saw the highlight reel, it's confirmed with all your friends, they're sending text messages back and forth, just emojis everywhere on your phone. Our team won. Our team won, right? You're excited. You go home and you start watching the replay, and quarter one, quarter two, your team is throwing interceptions. Your team is just down for the count. They're down 400 to nothing. (laughs) You see, like, checking the emoji date, right? When did they send me this text message? Let me ask you. If you know your team wins and you're watching the game and it seems impossible for them to come back, are you getting more afraid or more excited? You're getting stoked. How are they going to pull this out? What in the world? What kind of crazy place are they going to run to bring this back? There's no way. I can't wait to see how they do it. It's going to be amazing. Why? Because you've got a hope. You know what's coming. And no matter what it looks like right now in the moment, that hope is pulling you forward. I mean, imagine if you're playing the game. And you knew that you're winning. But you keep losing. (laughs) The oracle said we would win. (laughs) You might play a little different. You might get creative. You might throw it really long. You might run really hard. You might do some crazy stuff you wouldn't do otherwise. Why? Because you're not afraid of losing. That's how you're free to live in the gospel. Because the resurrection is a living hope for you. The gospel frees us from fear of our future. I'm going to close and just ask you to consider how the gospel transforms your past, present, and future. I just want you to imagine a life with no more negative motivation of guilt. Where you're trying to make up for what you've done by what you do. Or trying to justify your existence. Now here, you're free from sin's penalty. You're loved, you're acquitted, you're accepted, you're forgiven, you're righteous right now. Now I want you to imagine how your present is changed by the gospel. Because he didn't just die on the cross, but he was buried, and you're buried with him in baptism. You take on his name in baptism. You have a new identity. So no more negative motivation of shame. No more looking in the mirror and feeling uncomfortable in your own skin. No more scarlet letter. No more struggling with your sense of self-worth. Because he thought you were worth saving. And he's cleaning you up inside. He's sanctifying you through and through every day. You're experiencing ongoing salvation from sin's power. And right now you're his beloved son and daughter. Can you imagine how the gospel frees your future? No more negative motivation of fear. If you could live fear free. No more struggling for control. No more anxiety. No more despair. No more fear of missing out, driving you into all kinds of broken patterns. Because you know what your future holds. You know one day you will be glorified. You know heaven's waiting for you. He's waiting for you. You spend all eternity all the things you're chasing right now in their raw, broken forms, one day you'll experience in fullness. The most amazing things we desire on this earth, the gold our heart chased after, that's just going to be what's on the streets. The intoxication we chase, one day we'll drink at the fountainhead. The love we seek, we'll experience fully the way it was meant to be. You'll finally have arrived at the goal of your dreams and desires. Because of the gospel right now, you're free from guilt, shame, and fear. Let the love of God in the gospel be the thing that fuels your future and motivates your life. Don't don't spend another day wasting away in slavery to guilt and shame and fear. Not when you've been freed. Hmm. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace, for your love, <laughs> your boundless love. <laughs> Thank you that nothing less than your love defines me right now. Thank you, you love me so much. You were willing to take on all my broken, sinful, injustice, selfishness, and All the things that I don't want anybody else to know about me. All the things that I hide the memories and bury them deep, deep down in my soul, hoping they'll never come up. You know them all, and you nailed them all to the cross already. And you called me son. You've called me daughter. You've called me yours. And you've laid aside a glorious inheritance for me. I pray right now that we would actually believe that by the power of your, the work of your spirit that's at work in this place right now. Help us to believe that, to latch hold of that truth with, with hands of faith. Give us eyes to see what our feeble eyes struggle to see. Give us the ability, God, to surrender to your love. To rest in your work, to stop trying to prove ourselves and walk up to that cross and say, I-, I can do something good too here. But to just rest and let your finished work for us massage our heart back to life and, and give us life. And then, yes, to go out and to live lives on mission in this world that are increasingly holy, that look more and more like Jesus. Every day, out of a place of trusting in what you've done for us. Free us to believe that. Free us to rest in that. Free us from guilt, shame, and fear today. In Jesus' name, amen.